I think the art of coaching and, and why we're most important is that it is our job to, you know, relate to each and every player that we have. So if there's 25 players on a team, mm-hmm. it's more important for us to be 25 different types of people rather than 25 different people changed to our system as a coach. Hello and welcome to Ahead of the Curve. I am Jonathan Gellner, and thank you so much for joining us. This episode is brought to you by Baseball Cloud. Baseball Cloud's revolutionary software platform brings to life the numbers captured by TrackMan and FlightScope. This provides colleges, players, and facility owners around the world a turnkey product, allowing them to analyze their data using key metrics and custom visualizations on one intuitive user interface. Go to BaseballCloud.com to find out how you can have your own data analytics department for your program. Data has a story to tell, and Baseball Cloud gives it a voice. On today's show, I get the pleasure of interviewing the Houston Astros' Jason Bell. Jason has served several diverse roles within the Astros' farm system and is currently the minor league field coordinator. On the show, we discuss the art of cultivating team culture, but we also get into methods to adapting your coaching style to various players and his process of adjusting to a diverse group of players. This episode is so good, and here is Jason Bell. Jason, welcome to the show. Awesome. Uh, I really appreciate you having me, and I'm excited to be on the show. I'm excited as well, and and you've uh, you've had a marathon of a season, and, and you just said that you were in the Dominican, and then you were in the AZL or in the AFL, and then you are now headed home finally for a much deserved break that I'm sure. So I'm thankful that you were able to make some time for us today, so we could pick your brain and and get a little bit better. But for our listeners who want to want to get to know you a little bit better and get to know your background, can you give us a short snapshot of why you decided to get into coaching? Oh, uh, you know, there's a lot of reasons, but but one reason I always say is teaching life through a game. So I know what the game has done for me and, and how much better of a person, you know, I've become through the game of baseball, through all the coaches that, that helped me growing up and, and all the mentors and all the, the teammates that I had. So I felt like it would be a, a rewarding career to, to do the same, same way that, you know, people did that for me. Well, and I think that that's a fairly common theme and, and it's something that we shouldn't take lightly as coaches just because we all had been impacted by someone in the game and it just like the game grabs you and just doesn't let go which which I, I find just completely fascinating because there's there's probably very few jobs in the world that do that and so now you you've had an array of jobs in pro ball I mean kind of walk us through I would actually like to hear how you got into pro ball and then walk us through the different roles that you've had because I, I find that really interesting yeah so in uh 2012, I had Tommy John surgery, and it was right at the end of my junior year of college. And I was trying to figure out, like, okay, like what what's next for me? And you know, I, I always thought like coaching would be um, a great career. I just I never never was sure if I could make it work financially. But within that year of recovering from Tommy John, you know, I started to to look at the game from a different lens because I knew I, I couldn't play that season, and so I just felt like it, it was something for me and. I was lucky to be around a lot of great coaches at that time, and they helped better me as as a person, but also as a, a coach. So whenever I came back and, you know, it wasn't working out as great, I still kind of was looking at everything from a coaching lens. 
And so um, I had, was doing my master's degree at the same time. And to finish my master's degree, I had to do an internship. So luckily for me, I interned at Baseball Info Solutions, which is an um, analytical company that at the time, a lot of professional teams used to pay for their resources until a lot of you know, teams invested more into the, the analytics department. So I interned for, their, for them. And then um, to complete my master's degree in that, that 2013-2014 school year, I wrote my master's paper on why I thought the Astros were going to win the World Series in the, in the future. Mm-hmm. You know, talking a little bit about some of the things that I had researched and been a part of while I was at Baseball Info Solutions, but also a lot in what they do in drafting and developing players. And I, I thought it was, was interesting. And, and so what I did was I, I had, you know, sent my paper to the Astros, like a bunch and like, you know, nothing had really worked out for a while. You know, I didn't have a, a lot of experience. And then at the end of 2016, I had gotten a call and, and done an interview for a position called a development coach. Okay. And basically that was our first year having one of those at each affiliate, which was, you know, somebody who takes a lot of the information from pitching, hitting, defense, base running, whatever it is. And then um, 2018, you know, I was fortunate enough to, to get a manager gig. So that was last season. And then this year, you know, we had some, some movement and I became our uh, uh, fundamentals coordinator the, the, this past year. Oh, that's fantastic. And, and that's a, I think that's a fairly unique role in pro ball too, wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely. So basically what that role is, it's, it's a lot of, um, you know, different areas kind of combined into one, which is which is great experience for me. So a lot of teams have, you know, an infield coordinator, outfield coordinator, base running, and a field coordinator. And basically all of those areas are kind of combined into into one, which is part of my role, which, which I really enjoy because, you know, I, I get to, to dabble in, into a little bit of everything. Really, it's a really good challenge for myself. And I'm really excited about the coaches and the players we have in our organization that, you know, really make my, my job a little bit easier. No, oh, fantastic. And being someone who is, <laughs> being a high school coach, you, you kind of have to be divergent like what you're doing in pro ball. So I, again, I, I find your job completely fascinating because you get to see baseball from so much of a different lens in so many different areas. And one thing that, that I want to uh, talk with you about is designing practice because, it, again, I, I geek out about how to make practice efficient, how to make it flow, how to make it fun, how to make it chaotic, and trying to do all of that in different settings and different days and different times of the year. And and I think that I'm a firm believer in the compound effect to where if we can get 1% better every day over the course of a couple of years, just think of how much better we're going to be. And I think a lot of that starts with practice design. Like if we can get 10 or 12 more reps every day than the team down the street, then we're going to be a little bit better every single week. And by the time that the, that our kids graduate, they're going to be that much better than, you know, someone on a similar skill level. So talk to us a little bit about practice design. And I know this is kind of a, a general question, but give us some advice on how we can do that. I mean, what do you believe in? What should we spend time on? And, and let's just have a conversation about it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so before I got in with the Astros, uh, I coached at a junior college. I coached at, at two Division One schools. And, you know, I learned a lot by, you know, trying different things and, and really being honest with myself on, you know, okay, that went well, but how could it be better? Or that wasn't that great. What can I do to adjust that to improve it? And part of that is building skill. So I believe there's, you know, four major areas of building skill. One being the technique. Okay. Then when they graduate from having the technique, adding 
speed to it. And then from there, you can add variation. Mm-hmm. And then once they kind of graduate from those three things, you can add the chaos. Sometimes I feel like I'm definitely guilty of this too. Sometimes we jump straight to chaos before the guy really has the technique down. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes we kind of hope that it cleans itself up when we add the chaos. But in a lot of, a lot of times, it's, it's, uh, it's not maybe that easy. No, I, I, and I think that, you know, you, you hit the nail on the head. And, and it's something that over the past six months that, you know, I learned the hard way because about this time last year, I started to get into skill acquisition. And you hear the, the Bernstein theory thrown around a lot of if you if they'll self-organize, right? And uh, he uses the blacksmith as an example of, you know, over time, they're going to organize themselves in a way that completes the task. And, and we tried it and it just, it didn't work. It didn't work for everybody. And so trying to maneuver what we were doing as far as, I mean, I, I thought about it like when we're in a school system, you don't want to go immediately to algebra two whenever you haven't, you can't do two plus two, right? And so trying to meet them where they're at in those different levels, I think is huge for the coaches listening. If they've got the te- technique down, then you add a little bit of speed and then you add some, some variation, then you can add some chaos. And then if they don't pass it, then figure out which of those ladders or which of those steps that you need to go back to and then test and retest afterwards. And, and I, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong here or, or let's have a conversation about this, but I really like that because I think you have to build a foundation and you have to build the fundamentals before you do anything else, but it's also good to test them under some stress just to see where the weak link is. And then we can go back and help them with that. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I completely agree in the sense of, I feel like sometimes we just believe that the body will self-organize itself. And, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe sometimes it does, but maybe it doesn't do it in, you know, the most powerful way, or Mm -hmm. maybe it does for some of the players on the team and it doesn't for the others. So it's about getting on their level, each, each player's level and really being honest with yourself. And is this drill accomplishing what we really need? Or are we just hoping that kind of this drill is going to help them figure the, figure it out. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in a lot of ways, the chaos to help kind of test like if they're ready for that level or not, okay. but not solely focusing on hoping the, the body just self-organizes itself. Because a lot of times the player won't really know maybe what that feels like or what's actually happening. Mm-hmm. So that feedback could be positive, but in a lot of times it's not that positive for, for every player on the team. Well, and, and I'm just thinking of, okay, so let's say that we group a 14-year-old with an 18-year-old, 18-year-old seen, you know, 85 and sees it a lot of the times. And then you see, I have a 14-year-old who's maybe an incoming freshman who doesn't see that a lot. And the older guy will, who's seen it before, who's been there, who sees, who has seen some chaos and understands what that feels like and has been over it over time is going to adapt a whole lot differently than the 14-year-old. And, and you see this a lot too with younger players is the first thing that they'll do is they'll try and strip down every part of their swing to try and accomplish the task, which is making contact. And so they'll do the like really weird reach with their front foot and then load super early and then swing down to a spot that they're going to get to. And in some senses, that is you're you're accomplishing the task, which is you are making contact with the baseball. But as you mentioned, it's not necessarily optimal and it's not it's not something that we want them to do. So that that's I think that's something that we need to be careful about. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so important to have a good environment for the practice and have have 
really beneficial drills like um, like you're maybe talking about like a velocity machine or, or such, mm-hmm. which I completely agree with. But to your point, it doesn't necessarily become beneficial for every player. Right. Or maybe that player, maybe the 18-year-old is dominating the, the 85-mile-per-hour machine, mm-hmm. and then do you just keep it at that or do you keep pushing him? Or maybe right. the, you know, the 14-year-old is still struggling with it. And then a lot of times we end up just hoping that the the younger player kind of catches up instead of like kind of teaching them maybe the technique of how to do it. Mm-hmm. And I think that that, that sometimes can be a, a lost art and, um, you know, maybe even pulling the guy to the side and, and trying to, to give him an opportunity to practice the proper technique in a much easier setting mm-hmm. so that when he gets to that level off the machine, maybe the 85 mile an hour machine, that he is able to use what he was working on on the side mm-hmm. in a beneficial setting. Right. And, and something else to, to keep in mind that, that I've noticed lately is we need to help them to understand that failing is okay because psychologically, like say we use those two examples, the 18-year-old and the 14-year-old, the 14-year-old is looking at the 18-year-old going, man, I, I may never do this and this is embarrassing. And then they're, they're going to start to shut down a little bit or question what they're doing and try and change some different things just because of a fear of embarrassment. And, and I truly think that's a real thing. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the thing with jumping straight to chaos or something that's very difficult. If a guy is just failing and failing and failing, he's going to get discouraged and maybe not believe in what you're trying to accomplish mm-hmm. or just not even have any confidence and it's going to hurt their level overall. Right. And I think that that's kind of a, especially in baseball, like everybody talks about how difficult of a game it is and how much you fail. And with that, we need to make sure that we are positive with the players because it is such a difficult game and some of the drills can be really difficult, but if they never experience what it's like to succeed in some of that, it's just not going to be very enjoyable for them to be around. Mm -hmm. So it's also up to us as coaches to give them the proper positive feedback. So maybe they don't necessarily dominate the machine, but they had a little bit of progress, Mm -hmm. like really celebrating that and really explaining to them how difficult it is and how proud of them that we are. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's, something that myself I've been trying to, to get better at over the last few years is, you know, as coaches, we, we constantly look for the negative and we're trying, right. to, trying to pick out the flaws to make the player better. And sometimes we forget that, you know, we have to tell these guys that they're doing a good job and that we're proud of them. Mm-hmm. And because it's, it's, a hard, it's a hard game and every little bit of progress is progress. Right. So even if the result isn't what we want, it's headed in the right direction. And I think that positive feedback is such an important piece to this game especially with how difficult it is. No, I'm right there with you. And that's that's also been a, a recent area of study for me and, and research. And it's funny that you mentioned that just because, again, I, I'm writing an article currently as we speak over communication and how important that is as a coach. And research says that it should be three to one positive to negative. And I, I know that I'm not three to one. Like I, it's something that I'm continually working on, but three positives to one negative affirmation is what the ideal setting is for people to work at their best. And, and that's something that, that I'm constantly, I, I need to start looking for things. We, we as coaches, we want to help a ton, like you mentioned, and we're constantly looking for the negative things because in the end, we're, we're not trying to beat them down. We're just trying to find their flaws and help them fix it because that's, that's our jobs. But also adding to the, what you mentioned earlier of, of, of finding when they do things right. And then, 
you know, what gets praised gets repeated a ton because baseball is a negative sport as it is. And, and you know this, and, and guys in pro ball, I'm sure, just get beat over the head with negativity all the time because they're failing all the time. I mean, how, how important is that to be able to pick out those positive things and help, the, you know, help them understand that we're learning you, we're learning the learner, and we're on your side, we're trying to help, so let's, let's uh, be positive about it. Yeah, it's incredibly important. And you think about maybe a guy has, you know, a round of five or ten swings in whatever drill you're doing, and maybe only one of them is good. Mm-hmm. But that is a positive because they've at least done one good. And it's important that we as coaches, like, kind of take hold of that one that was, was good and kind of run with it. And so then maybe the next time it's, it's two out of ten, and then maybe it's three out of ten, but then maybe it goes back to one out of ten. I just explain to them that, like, if you could just get better and maximize every swing and, and be really good, everybody in the world would be really good. Mm-hmm. But in reality, the game is difficult. You know, skill acquisition is difficult. And every little bit of slow progress is progress. And a lot of times they're going to drop back down before they can get back up to, you know, where they were at. But as long as they can feel what it was like when they did have that one, one or two or three good ones, then they can kind of run with that confidence as well and just kind of search and try to build off of that one. And whenever they have a few bad ones, it's okay because, you know, it's not, it's not realistic to think that somebody's going to pick up something quick and go 10 out of 10 with, with good swing. Well, and, and I'd love your, your thoughts on this too. And, and something that, that I've been thinking, again, talking about communication, whenever we're talking about the negative aspect of just reinforcing that, we're like, hey, you didn't do this right, you didn't do this right. They're thinking about what they didn't do right. And that is kind of reinforcing some of their bad habits of, okay, this is what that felt like. And they're spending more time thinking about what they did negatively, which could sometimes reinforce that pattern that we're trying to fix instead of if we do it in a positive manner, they're thinking about the positive aspect more, which can potentially gain more feel and reinforce that into their long-term memory. I, I don't know. And that's something that, that I'm, I'm curious about too. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, I think the art of coaching and, and why we're most important is that it is our job to, you know, relate to each and every player that we have. So if there's 25 players on a team, Mm -hmm. it's more important for us to be 25 different types of people rather than 25 different people changed to our system as a coach. I love that. And I think that that's where the, that's where the art comes to, because in a lot of senses, you know, if a guy is super negative all the time, you need to be the positive source. Or if a guy is, is only on one track, and you need to like bring them down a little bit. Like you have to be able to like maneuver through all the different personalities to get the result that you want. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's the most important thing is being adaptable to each player instead of them having to all be adaptable to just you one person as a coach. So we probably have some coaches listening and, and one that I, I think that's absolutely fantastic advice. But also, can you talk about maybe a practical situation or some different things that you do to try and learn the learner and to try and just get to know them better? Is it creating a relationship first and trying to get to know them and then you can kind of adapt your coaching style towards, okay, they need a kick in the butt or they need a word of encouragement and getting a feel for the situation? I, I know how important you know emotional intelligence is and being able to read people and, and it's something that I love to study and I, and I love to try and put into my coaching. But also it, it's, it's hard. Like it's hard to be able to do that with, like you mentioned, 25 guys. So what are some different ways that you've found to be able to, to try and do that on a daily basis? I think like a lot of times it, it, this sounds kind of simple, but 
having fun with the guys. Sometimes yeah. they get intimidated by us because we're coaches or whatever the, the scenario may be, but getting to know them and, and making sure that you can make them smile, but mm-hmm. also that you can get underneath their skin. And if you can, if you can get both of those two areas out of each player, you're going to be able to knock them down and bring them up when you need to. I like so that. I think for me personally, getting to know the guys, getting to know their background, their families, and a lot of times watching how they interact with other coaches, with other players, even when you're not necessarily involved and maybe the team stretch or in the weight room, just kind of seeing how they, they handle certain scenarios with, um, you know, other staff and, and um, players. But, you know, then building off of that, like getting to know, getting to know what their background is, where they came from, and then each day kind of building off of that. And some guys it will be easier than others. And so then you just have to have the awareness to kind of maneuver through it to make sure that you can get to a guy and not give up on them. Oh, definitely. And I, I think that's that's great and very practical advice. And so essentially you're just saying pay attention and listen. Yeah, in a, in a lot of lot of ways, definitely paying attention and, and listening and, you know, treating them like people and, mm-hmm. you know, talking with them and not just at them. And, you know, I think that the players want to feel comfortable. And a lot of, a lot of scenarios, if they're not comfortable, it is up to us to maneuver the conversation, to maneuver the, the coaching so that they can feel comfortable with having a, an all-around conversation and not just like saying yes or or just a, in an agreement mode, but really kind of like messing around with them. You know, I think mm-hmm. one thing that, that I try to do with, with, the, with the guys is kind of have like some, especially the younger guys, have, have some like funky handshakes with them. And you know, a lot of them like shoes and things like that. So mm-hmm. I've like tried to, to get like, you know, different style of shoes and a little bit more flashier shoes just to like, I can relate to them in a little bit of ways. And, you know, a lot of times the guys may say like, mucho flow, mucho flow. And that like kind of, you know, that kind of can generate, you know, the vibe for the day or, you know, I I can mess around with them like as we're building up to to get into a team stretch. And, you know, I think it helps the overall vibe for development because something as little as that can make the player feel comfortable if he feels like he can, you know, mess around with me a little bit. And then when it gets down to it, we can work together and, you know, improve that player's skills. Sure. It's it's funny that you say that. So over about the last two years, I've started to collect not, you know, not like j- basketball J's, but like the, the trainers and the running shoes, huge hit yeah. in, in the classroom. And they're like, oh, Co- Coach Gilner, your J's are sweet today. I'm like, yeah, I, I know these things. And, and then they ask me questions about like the actual basketball shoes and the different styles that are coming out. And I'm like, uh, I have no idea. But so I yeah. may maybe losing some credibility with that, but I can definitely relate to that, which that's that's really funny. But it's again, it's, you're trying to relate and you're trying to get on their level. You're trying to help them show that some things that are important to them are important to you too, and that you're a human being and and you're there for them. And, and I love that. And you know something that something else that we want to talk about a lot. We talk about the environment and we talk about the culture that we are in. And you look at at the most successful programs in history you look at, I think of immediately, I think of the Patriots and their culture. And, and obviously the Astros have done that over the past 10 years or so of, of building the culture and then sustaining it in, in a way that is lasting over a stretch of time. And so what, what do you believe that culture is? I know the problem that I have is, is we can see it, we can smell it, we can feel it whenever we're there, but it's really hard to create. And it's really hard to, to put into words what culture is and, and how it was built. So what, what, do, you, what do you think of that? And, and just kind of walk us through what you believe culture is. You know, I, I think there's a lot of different areas to culture. And I think sometimes 
we focused, I mean, maybe primarily on, you know, how a player, you know, may dress or just about like being on time and hustling, which those are all very important. But those to me are expectations. I think when it comes to culture, I think within all of those areas is where you can build the culture. So what are we doing for the stretch? What are we doing within our 13,000 throws that we get on average of, of 10 minutes a day throughout the whole season? What are we doing in between innings? You know, what is the focus on every rep? And can the players, you know, speak back to you on what they're working on in a mass ground ball setting or what they're working on in their throwing program or what they're working on in, in every swing that they take? I think that that's the type of culture that you have to build. So we talk about being growth-minded and having a bunch of coaches that are growth-minded. But making the players growth-minded as well is one of the most difficult things, but that's how you're going to match it, and that's how you're going to have you know development happen quicker. And mm-hmm. at the end of the day, it's, it's how fast you can develop the player skills because a lot of times you may only have the guy for a month, two months, a year, even if it's, even if it's four years, you've you got to come a long way in a short amount of time. Mm-hmm. And I think building the culture is not just within the coaching staff being growth-minded. It's putting that into the player as well. And, you know, I think a lot of people talk about working hard, but, you know, if we're in a room of, you know, 100 players or 100 coaches and you ask how many, yes, for a show of hands, of how many people, you know, feel that they work hard, I think almost every single person is going to raise their hand. But have we ever really defined what working hard really is? Sure. Working smart. And what, what does that mean in To me, like working smart is self-reflecting after every single part of the day, all throughout the day. Mm -hmm. It's holding yourself accountable of what you've reflected on to put it into action. And I think that that's like such a huge piece where, you know, if we're just working hard, setting up the practice, making sure it goes well, you know, I don't really necessarily think we're doing a good enough job at building the culture because we need to adapt and evolve it all throughout the day without throughout every single drill and maybe you know, maybe it was a positive drill on one particular day, but maybe even ask the guys, making them feel comfortable of giving you honest feedback. Like, mm-hmm. what did you like about that drill? Or, you know, that, that wasn't too good, was it? Like, why didn't you like that? And a lot of times, like, even leading them to that, because in a lot of scenarios, they may not feel comfortable telling you that that wasn't for me. I feel like I didn't get anything out of it. And I think that if you can have that type of environment, that means that your culture is in a place that you need to be because in the end, it shouldn't be us talking at them. It should be us talking with them. And a lot of times for myself, I feel like I speak too much if I'm in a drill, Mm -hmm. but at the end of the day, can they say it back to me in their terms? Can they, can, do they really understand or, you know, do we just feel good about our delivery of the message to the player? And I think that, you know, one thing I've, I've, tried to improve on in myself is I used to feel really good about, you know, some of the delivery of my messages and, you know, maybe, uh, you know, maybe it didn't go that well. And, you know, I'm frustrated with the players. I'm like, man, I just, I just told them, I told them three times, but at the end of the day, that means that we're not doing a good enough job. It's not on them. It's it's on us to adjust our styles so that by the third time it's going to work and that we're not doing the same thing three straight times to try to get the same result. It's that we kind of adjust our language or how we present to the player so that it can work for that particular player. And then maybe the guy behind him in the line needs to, to hear it a different way. But I think that that's a large part of the culture. And I, I think that that's what you need to make development happen as, as fast as you can. And you're, get, you're getting me fired up over here. And that, uh, yeah, I, I can't, couldn't agree more. And, and we've all been 
in situations and and sometimes there you know there there's just so much to unpack with what you just said but I immediately thought of some situations on where either I said it or an uh, you know another coach said it of where somebody asked you a question and you'd say well I told him and he didn't perform it well I I get that but back to your talking about the art of coaching did they learn it if they learned it and they understood it, then they should have performed it. And so that, that we need to be pointing it back at ourselves. And, and there's sometimes that they just didn't execute it, that they knew exactly what they needed to do, but baseball's hard, right? I mean, they knew that they yep. needed to get the guy in from third base with a tie game and just anything that, that can do that executes the task. But we told them, but they just didn't execute. So that's that's something else that, that we need to keep in mind. But I, I think you hit the nail on the head, I think, that, you know, it's their career. We haven't taken a bat in like a decade and we won't. And so if they're not learning what they need to do to be successful, then we're not going to be successful and neither are they. I, I'm right there with you. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think in a, in a lot of scenarios, we're trying everything we possibly can and, and we feel like there's nothing else we can do. But mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, we have to really be honest with ourselves. But a lot of times, I think you need to use feedback on the player's kind of body language, how he's how he's kind of taking the coaching that you're giving them and, and kind of wonder like, man, it, it doesn't look like he's maybe bought in, but maybe he doesn't feel comfortable um, disagreeing or something. So mm-hmm. sometimes you gotta, you gotta lead them. You gotta maybe ask him, you know, what don't you understand about this one? Like, you know, maybe even like a one-on-one setting. Cause a lot of times, you know, we want to complain about how a pl- certain player asks, mm-hmm. you know, acts, but like a lot of times have we really sat down with them? Have we really, gotten to try to dive into how their mind is working to where that they can feel comfortable and honest and not intimidated to give us the honest feedback to get mm-hmm. them better. Because a lot of times, you know, it, it's a very difficult skill, but a lot of times maybe they're just not bought into what they're, what we're saying. And so we think they're maybe not listening, but really we need to explain it in a different format so that they can maybe agree or we can find something neutral where, you know, we can kind of meet them in the middle and, you know, try to maneuver whatever we're trying to do coaching wise to, to get them to buy into it. And a lot of times I think it's us maneuvering what we're trying to say, and it can be them coming up with the idea on their own mm-hmm. when really we've been kind of pushing them, pushing it towards them because sure. that's probably going to motivate them a little bit more as if they feel like it was their idea from the get go. And for us, it doesn't matter as long as we can get them to do mm-hmm. you know what we feel is best. However, they come up with it. If we can lead them to that, that's, that's part of the art of coaching. No, and I think that that's that that is why I think being a good question asker is a huge, huge benefit to coaches because I, again, we can see and we can probably tell most players what they're doing wrong, but unless they can feel it and unless they can fix it and unless they can buy into it, then it doesn't matter what we think. And something that that I think is is the great equalizer. There's really two things. I think data can be if it's objective and it's important to us and it can give a middle ground between you and the player rather than Jason is telling me this. Well, now the data is backing up what Jason says and together we can work to make this improve, but also video. I mean, we talk about behavior. I mean, how big would it be to be able to show bad body language on video and just say, Hey, this is what you're looking like. Did did you even know that this is like you're doing the loser's limp back to the dugout like the entire time. And they're like, no, I maybe I didn't. And it's something that we can get onto them about, but they may not even be aware that they're doing it. But if they see it, man, it can definitely trigger some different emotions as to, oh, okay, yeah, I don't want to look like that again. I mean, I, I have you seen that too? 
Yeah, absolutely. And and I think in a lot of scenarios, like we, we are coaching players who are very visual learners oh, and absolutely. we are seeing something in a, in a game from a different lens than maybe they feel or see it. So it becomes very important to show them the lens that we are talking about so that they can maybe see it from our perspective and why we want something to change. Because in a lot of times they can't connect what they feel with what's happening. So we have to bridge that gap. And a lot of times we can use data and everything to help them. But a lot of times they don't need to be able to look at all the charts and the graphs and, and be able to figure it out because that's our job. And we're information translators. So mm -hmm. we don't need them to necessarily understand the language or know the vocabulary of biomechanics or understand all the different sequences through blast motion. But if they can do the activity themselves and perform it, or even if they can't explain it, but they can show you what they feel like we're talking about, that's what we want. Because we don't need it to be, you know, more of like a vocabulary test for them. We just need them to perform and do it in their own words or whatever works works easiest for them. Because some guys are maybe going to use the right words and not know what it means, or some of the guys are not going to use the right words but actually know what it means. And that's that's what we want. We just want them to be able to put it in their own ways and perform. And I think sometimes we maybe get caught too much on too many big words, and you may you may lose a bunch of guys mm -hmm. and they're just kind of throwing, throwing certain words out there. Uh, but at the end of the day, just making sure that we're information translators to where they can just go out there and perform. Oh, and, and the more that we can free them up, especially in, in your case, where they're playing 150 games a year, the more the better that they're going to perform, the, the more clear that they're going to think, the more calm they're going to be under pressure. And I, I'm 100% in with you on that. And, and so another thing that you've mentioned a couple of times, and that's you know self-reflection, and seeing what went well, what didn't, what's your process behind that? And, you know, so, so let's say we ran a practice and it may or may not have gone good, but what is your, what is your process after practice of self-reflection to either tweak it and make it better, decide what you like, what you didn't like, or just kind of walk us through what you do after each practice to make sure that, that the next one is a little bit better? Yeah. So I'll, I'll give like an example for, for spring training. So I run the schedule for, for minor league spring training every day, and it, it, it can become very difficult because there's, there's so many players. Oh, I can, uh, I can but imagine. what I like to do is I have my schedule, which I feel like it's very detailed. But before we even start the day, I'm trying, I'm writing all over the schedule about certain areas that, you know, I want to make sure happens or, or doesn't happen or this type of drill. I want to make sure we emphasize this. And you know, after I go over it with the staff, I'm kind of roaming around making sure it happens. But all throughout the day, I'm like taking notes and putting a little, little um, quick notes on there. And at the end of the day, kind of reviewing them all and, and really being honest with myself. But you can also do what, you know, what we call start, stop and continue, mm -hmm. where you can maybe reflect with the other coaches and ask, sit down with them and say, you know, what do we need to start doing better? What do we need to stop doing? And what do we need to continue doing that we're doing well? And I think when you have that culture, what happens is, you know, people feel comfortable kind of giving you suggestions on things that, you know, they feel they, they should change because at the end of the day, it's, it's not about me. It's, it's not about me running a good schedule. It's about the schedule just being good for all the coaches and all the players. And so I think really being honest and going through every single part of the schedule and like really trying to maximize the development within that. And there's been quite a few times where I've created something and I feel like it's going to be great. And maybe it is for like two days. And I'm like, you know what? That really isn't that good. So I shouldn't feel so proud that I created that. I need mm -hmm. to, to really adjust that to get something more out of it. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's, it's important to really be honest with yourself and 
take, you know, the emotion to a side and really just ask yourself, like, did the player actually get better in that? And if he didn't, it's like, okay, what can I do to make him get better quicker? Right. And I think that that's just a, a, a huge area of being honest with, with how the schedule works and um, how it flows. Well, and I, again, I think you hit the nail on the head with, with ego. I think sometimes that when we create things and we, we get ourselves excited about it, it, sometimes it doesn't work, and that's where we have to take the ego out. I mean, ego is is the enemy. For me, I, that's one of my favorite books uh, to read, and it was something that, that hit me square between the eyes of, man, I, I do have a lot of ego, and I, I think in I think we all do, but I think understanding how we cope with that and understanding that our bodies and our mind's natural inclination to go to that first and to be defensive and to not, or to, I, I guess being defensive would be, would be the best thing. That's immediately what a lot of minds go to. And, and what happens when something doesn't go right, we're like, well, that's not, you know, that's not my fault, but, but sometimes it is. And some, and again, if we're in a position of influence as a coach or as a teacher or as a, as a leader, then we have an obligation to make sure that we get better and our followers get better. And if they're not, then that's on us. And I think that, that that's really good. And, and that's something that I'm sure keeps you up at night. I know that that keeps me up at night too, of, of how do I get through to that player or, or how do I create an environment or a drill that is suited towards this group of players? I mean, it, it, it leads to a lot of sleepless nights. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing that I went on an emotional roller coaster in a matter of two minutes one time was maybe like two weeks into spring training this year. One of the players who I'd coached for a few years is comes right up to me and is like, Hey, why are we not getting more reps in this area? At the time I was like, man, is this guy, you know, is he questioning, you know, what we're doing? Mm -hmm. And then quickly I realized, you know what, this is actually really healthy. This is important because if this player feels like he needs more work in this area and we're not getting it to him, I'm so glad that he feels comfortable in saying that. And then we can work together to manipulate the schedule to get what we need out of it. And I, I think that that was a huge realization of how good our culture really is. But it also made me realize how important it is as a coach, to, like you're saying, put your ego aside, because at the end of the day, everybody has an ego. But how can you manipulate your own ego mm -hmm. to maximize development for the players. Because at the end of the day, it's, it's really not at all about us. Mm -hmm. It's about how can we make each player better on a regular basis. Yep, absolutely. And I again, we, we wouldn't be a good coach if we didn't have an ego because that ego is what tells us, hey, we need to get better. Hey, we need to continue mm -hmm. to improve. Yeah. But whenever we... We also need to understand where we need to scale that back of, okay, yeah, that I may be wrong. I may have not. That didn't go exactly how I wanted it to. And, and to be able to manipulate our ego and, and instead of letting it control us, we control it and use it to our advantage. And, and I think that that's, especially with, with baseball players and coaches, we have to have an ego because our sport beats us down every single day. And, and once we, we thought we think we figured it out, you move up a level and then you're hitting 220, you know? And so it, yep. it, it's like that with coaching too. Once you think you figured it out, then you've got the one player that drives you nuts because you cannot figure out how to get him moving better or playing better or his behavior changed. And, it's something that, yeah, absolutely, 100%. And people that looking from the outside in, they wonder why the heck we signed up. But, uh, but yeah, so yeah. let's let's get to know you a little bit better. And a, a popular question lately, because professional baseball, it seems like an attainable goal for, for people with a growth mindset who enjoy learning, who are consistently trying to get better. And, and it, it seems like, you know, coming from, like, yourself, a guy from outside of pro ball, 
What advice would you give for someone who wants to get to that level? And, and what are some different skills that they need to hone in on to, if they get that opportunity, that they're ready? You know, I, I think one major area is, is showing um, an organization where you can add value. And, you know, for, for me, I knew that just putting a resume out there wasn't going to, like, help the organization want to hire me because I hadn't really done anything. And, and even, with, even if I had, even if I had a great playing career or something, it doesn't necessarily mean that I can, you know, I can coach the players the way that I would want. So I think showing where you can add value and, you know, creativity is great, but like using the creativity to like actually develop somebody's skills and not just being creative mm -hmm. for the sake of being creative. Right. And I think when it really comes down to it, especially since I, I didn't play pro baseball, communication is key and being able to communicate with, players from all sorts of different backgrounds. For me personally, I think one thing that helped me that I was really lucky about, you know, I grew up in a very diverse area. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I coached at a, a, a few very diverse schools. I now coach players from different countries. Mm -hmm. And it's really awesome. It's one of my favorite things about coaching because you get to coach with people from, from all different backgrounds. But I think really being able to coach the players that have such a different background than you and being successful with it, is going to be most important because if you can relate with the player easily, then you're probably going to be able to, to maybe coach them easier. Mm -hmm. But if there's somebody with a much different background than you, it's going to be way more difficult for you than, than you realize. But that's where the art of communication mm -hmm. has to come into play. And that's something in, in professional baseball that is, is very key because you're going to have players from different countries, different backgrounds, some players from college, some players from Latin America and mm -hmm. It is the, the best thing about coaching professional baseball, but it also can be the most difficult at times. So for ad advice for coaches who are getting into, a whether that be pro ball or not, are getting into an environment where they have such diversity, any advice? Yeah, I mean, I, I would maximize that and really try to use those scenarios to help you develop those skills. And you're going to fail at times. You're not going to be able to get through to some guys, but really using the self-reflection and, and practicing those skills. Because I think when we're vulnerable, that's where we're at our, our best state for learning. And I think that, that those environments can help us. And, you know, if, if we're really comfortable in what we're doing, if we're really confident, it's good. But if we're vulnerable and we're, we're having to change and, and learn some things on the fly and, and try different things, I think that that's where we can grow the quickest. And I think in, for a coach in that scenario, I definitely, I definitely believe the communication aspects on how you can build a player's skills you know, within that framework would help them in pro ball. I love that. And so my next question is, is it is evident that you are a learner and you are, you're trying to get a little bit better every single day. And so tell us a little bit about your learning journey uh, lately. And what's something that you've learned lately that you're really excited about? Definitely something lately would be, uh, I've learned a little bit about the, the new Hawkeye system that, that seems like it's going to be similar to TrackMan. I'm really excited to, to see what that's going to do for our game because I think it's really going to have a, a, a massive positive impact for coaches and players. As far as like the, the learning journey for me and everything, I, I love to read, but more than anything, I, I like to take, take things from just any interaction with anybody. You know, if, if you're going to, you know, Starbucks and you see how some, like the cashier interacts with a difficult customer and just taking something from even that scenario and, and not just from, you know, other coaches or other players, but really just having your, your mind on a consistent, like 
learning environment where you're just trying to, to take something from everybody's interactions. And a lot of times it's like, man, that person would handle that situation way better than I think I would have. But why is that? Can I take something from that and apply it to, to my life? And I, I try to, to do that with every single thing, every single day, and, and just try to make that like a natural habit and a, and a natural like reflection after each you know encounter throughout the day from the time I wake up to the time I go to sleep. It's not just that I learn when I'm in the reading setting or when I'm at the baseball field. It's that you're learning about people at all times of the day. You're learning about communication at all times of the day. Oh, that's fantastic. So it seems like behavior is your is on your high list of priorities to try and learn uh, on a daily basis. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, too, one, one thing that I do is I have like a running notes section on my phone, things that I feel like I need to get better at. And there may be certain days where I add 10 things to it. And then at the end of the day, I'm trying to figure out, okay, well, how do I, how do I get better at it? You know, is it as simple as me just you know, holding myself accountable to acting better? Or is it me where I need to go learn more about a certain area? But all throughout the year, I'm like, okay, you know, next year I need to adjust this better. I need to adjust this. And then at the end of, you know, six months, you got this massive note section and you're going to look at it and, and feel very discouraged in a, in a sense, but it's going to help you learn. It's going to make you vulnerable to, to learn and, and get better because it's the same thing for us as players. You know, how, how fast can we get better as coaches? You know, the same way we want to make the players get better faster because, you know, they're they're in a much different time where they have maybe less time to get better. But still for us, we need to get better as fast as we possibly can and really reflecting on how you actually try to get yourself better. And I think a lot of it be- comes down to self-reflection and putting that into action. Sure. It's, uh, you you seem like a guy and is coming through that you're a guy who definitely self-reflects a lot. And, and that's something that I can definitely definitely get behind because again you're gonna you're gonna get better every day because of it so let's uh let's talk about uh, your players and let's say you know you are you are setting up practice and you are setting up the environments what is something that if you showed up tomorrow and the guy saw that they had a list of things that they absolutely love like you're like i'm, I'm gonna set up tomorrow just based on what the players love to do uh, what would be a couple of those things it kind of depends i'm somebody who really values like a lot of one-on-one coaching so within that framework, I think it's really about making it specific to each guy. And a lot of times that list of things may even be me asking them, you know, what do you want to do today? Like now this, this is, this is on you today. Like I, I've, we have this block of time. We've done the drills that I've wanted to do. Now I'm going to reward you and you trying to give me something that you want to do where we can accomplish the same thing. And I think sometimes when you do that, it shows, it shows the player that like, you know, you trust them. It shows the player that like you believe that, you know, they're truly getting better and it's kind of like a reward. So that's, that's definitely one, one area of that, that I, that I like to do is, is make it more of overall interaction. And, you know, I may have some ideas, but definitely asking them because they're going to maybe have more intent and more focus if it's something that they've created and something they want to try. Mm-hmm. And so maybe it's, you know, at the end of a long season or that it's through a tough stretch and you're like, you tell them, you know, like, I'm proud of the, the progress you've made. I feel like I have a few drills we can try, but you know, I really want to, you know, I really want you to, to feel comfortable with, you know, trying the, your own thing. And, you know, a lot of times the, the, the player may not even have anything he off the top of his mind, mm-hmm. but maybe you can help push him to that. And so that way he can kind of hold himself accountable because it's, it's something he's created. 
No, that makes a ton of sense. And I, I love that. And, and that's something that I think we can all benefit from of, of showing up and to say, or maybe sending out a, a group text and saying, hey, what do you guys want to do tomorrow? I think that that's, I love that. Yep. And, and Absolutely. That's something we can all steal from you. So this is, this was, prepare yourself because this is probably the toughest question I'll ask, but what's something that you believe that other coaches may disagree with you about? And the premise behind this is that we all have biases and we all have different things that yeah. we may believe that, that we discuss with other coaches who may not agree with us about, but what would, what comes to mind whenever I ask you that? Probably the first thing that comes to my mind when I hear that question is I believe that you can get a player's skills better faster in a one-on-one or two-on-one setting quicker than you can in a, in a mass group setting. And so I think maybe a lot of people may disagree or agree with that. And they think, well, you know, that's not practical because of this, this, and this. But I think that there are certain ways where you can use all the constraints and like design your schedule around that. Because I think designing your schedule and creating that environment is so much more important than people realize rather than just having like a block. Okay. Now this is going to be 20 minutes for infielders. This is going to be 20 minutes for this. This is going to be 20 minutes for this. It's like, okay, well, what do we really need? And I, I think a lot of times it, it comes down to each player needs something different. So and let's say it's mass ground ball setting. That, that is important. But if a player is lacking a certain skill, maybe it's a backhand ground ball. So it's like, okay, maybe he got three or four backhand ground balls in that setting. But in a one-on-one segment for maybe even 10 minutes, you can knock out the skill of that very quickly. And you don't have to disrupt the, the flow from the rest of the players. And so I really think my personal opinion on that is you can get guys better quicker in a one-on-one setting quicker than you can in, in a mass group setting. And it's up to us as coaches to manipulate the schedule, no matter what the constraints are, to be able to get those, those players' skills better rather than just kind of giving in and just hoping that they get better through a, a, a mass setting. Mm-hmm. Okay. I can get behind that. So say let's say that we, we came and watched you run either a training session or run a practice. What would you think that we would notice. So what are a couple of things that I don't necessarily know if you do differently, but just things that you think that would stand out to us or hope so? Uh, I think if, yeah, you know, I think if people were watching in, uh, you know, spring training or extended spring training or whatever it is, I think you would see a lot of players smiling. And I think that you would see everything done with a purpose. Everything is very deliberate, no matter what area of the practice that it is, whether it's stretch, whether it's throwing program, whether it's ground balls, whatever it is. And I think the, the third thing that you, you'd probably, that would probably stand out the most is how much coaching happens all the time. It may be four ground balls and there's a ton of co- coaching ground ball, uh, coach, coaching going on, maybe in the cage or whatever it is. It's, a lot of times uh, I, I believe that, you know, that's, that's one of the, the things that makes us who we are is there's a lot of coaching going on. And that doesn't necessarily even mean just us talking to them. It may be like, wow, that was a great, that was a great rep. Like, what did you feel? Like, I want you to tell me what you felt in that that made you accomplish that, you know, that skill for that mm-hmm. particular rep. And I think that then pointing out, like, okay, now you're chasing that feeling for the rest of this time and holding them accountable to doing that, especially when you're in, like, a, a bigger group setting. And I think that those would be the, the three things. So, you know, players smiling, everything being done with a purpose, and a lot of coaching happening. Well, and if I could, if I could steal the mic for just a second, uh, in the education world, mm-hmm. 
Those are three things that absolutely 100% transfer to long-term retention. So anytime we can tie emotion to things and have them enjoy what they're doing, that's going to help. And obviously, anytime that you ask for their self-reflection or feedback, that's going to help them think about what they're doing, and it's going to help those things stick. So not only is it going to be a fun environment that you're setting up, but it's also, it leads to, and, and this is this is me from a coach and a teacher standpoint, it's going to lead, lead to long-term retention of the information that you're giving them. So I absolutely love that, and, and I think that there's a reason why your players would love to play for you or or to play in the environment that you're setting up. And so the the final question is fairly fairly general, but you, we all have different books and resources that have shaped our coaching career. So what are some of yours and can you share those with us? Well, I would say the most beneficial one that I've read recently is a book called Essentialism. And the cover is tells you a lot about what the book is about. It's a bunch of scribbles and there's an arrow that are inside the scribble, it says noise. And then there's an arrow that says central, centralism. And so basically what I took from that book was how much noise happens in our, in our brains on a daily basis and how we need to be aware of that and like sort through it. And I think, especially for me, like my mind gets racing a hundred miles per hour and, and sometimes it distracts me mm-hmm. from what, what's actually essential. And I think that that was like one of the most important books I've read most recently to, to help me become a better coach. For this upcoming offseason, the, the first two books I have to start reading is Thinking Fast and Slow. Mm-hmm. And the other one that was just recommended to me that I just ordered off Amazon was the book called Peak. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm really excited to learn about those and, and how people think and, and how you can you know get, get everybody better with learning about how the mind works and, and how the brain is and really trying to apply it in a, in a baseball setting. Fantastic. And Jason, I you can tell you have a, a just a thirst for learning, and that's something that I can always get behind. And I, I appreciate you uh, coming on the show and sharing so much with us. And you can you can tell you have a passion for the game. You can tell your players love playing for you. You can tell that you're going to be better tomorrow than you were today, which is saying a lot because you brought it today. And and so if any of our listeners want to get in touch with you and and ask you about something today, is there a place online that we can find you? Yeah, uh, you guys could can message me on Twitter. My um, Twitter is J underscore Bell underscore 11. So yeah, I'd be happy to interact with, with anybody with, with questions on these. And that would be that would be fantastic. And one thing I just want everyone to, to realize just overall that sometimes we can we can complain about certain players and why they act. There may be anywhere from 12 to, to 25 years old. But you know, when we were once that age, we can look back and say, like, man, I've really, really come a long way. Mm-hmm. But they're going through that currently. So it's, us to, it's up to us to help them get through that the best they can, the same way that, that helped us shape, shape us to who we are today. And I think that us realizing, like, how far we've all came, and sometimes we can look back and think, like, man, I can't believe I used to do that or this. Mm-hmm. Like, what they may be doing is, is actually normal. Mm-hmm. And we can't necessarily just complain about it. We have to to do something about it and be there for them in, in, in every every situation possible. I love that. And, and uh, if I could go back and be a 20-year-old self, I would do a lot of things differently. And I, I think that that resonates with a lot of us. And But yeah, it's I'm going to open up the mic for you. And, and that was a great segue. But is there anything else that you'd like to tell our listeners before you go? No, mainly just that. I, I kind of wanted to just finish on that, just, just to, to make everybody kind of realize, you know, we, we were once who these players were, you know, we were, we were once those types of people 
And even if we feel like, you know, a, a guy is struggling with something and, and we may feel like he's not bought in or whatever it is, it's up to us to adapt and change that because we were probably those people once before anyways. And so I think that it's, it's important for us to not push those people away, but like bring them in and do what we can to, to help them through it. Thank you for listening to Ahead of the Curve. You can subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, which can include Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or YouTube. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please share it on social media to help get the word out. Once again, thank you for joining us.